Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! And welcome to the latest, and what is for now, the last in the first series, I hope it will just be, of One Step Beyond, a show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. With me, your host, Tony Fletcher, and today, also with a co-host, Paula Lucas. Say hi, Paula. Hi, everyone. Paula, you were a guest uh, many episodes back, the first one after the Kilimanjaro series, correct? Episode five. Episode five, where I talked about my vegan journey and becoming a runner. Absolutely, you did. And I wanted to have you on here for this episode for a couple of really good reasons. Number one is we're flipping the script this time round, and I am the interviewee because I have a story to tell, which is one that I alluded to in the, uh, the last episode. And number two is I think it's really nice to have you on here because you are a little bit a part of this story or a lot of bit a part of this story. And that's because actually we've been an item since somewhere around that episode five, right? (laughs) That's true. As for this being the last episode in the series, it's actually good news because I'm actually just transitioning to another podcast, which is more centered around my quote day job. Um, which is as a writer and a, and a book I have coming out, we're going to play the trailer at the end of this particular episode. So it's not the end of me podcasting. I can't juggle two at once. And uh, I'll talk a bit more probably after all of this is done um, about that aspect of it. And for now, there is a show that I would love to still find time to put together. It was from the group run that five of us did of the Escarpment Trail Run back at the end of July. I took this lovely Zoom recorder that you and I are using today on that run. The audio is really good. Um, Ten days later, um, my world went a little bit upside down, so I haven't had a chance to to edit that. Um, but I'm thrilled to have you on here, Paula. You're going to do the um, asking of the questions. And I think we're going to jump into this after the theme music. I don't think there's any need for me to say too much more than this. Um, So everybody, welcome aboard once more to One Step Beyond. Um, Please, like, you know, strap yourself in, lie down on your gurney and (laughs) um, inject yourself with whatever, whatever fine things are being prescribed to you. And if you are able to avoid all of that, all the better. So join us as we prepare to go. One step beyond. All right, Tony, you recently had a major health scare. Can you tell us in short what happened before we really get into the story? Yeah, the very, very short answer is I had a brain hemorrhage, which I learned from texting people. The words brain hemorrhage feels every bit as scary to those on the receiving end of said text, including yourself, whether or not I use those exact words, as it does to the person who's undergoing it. That's right. Did you have any risk factors for a brain hemorrhage? No, I did not. The 
one thing that was, oh my God, terrible pun coming up here in the back of my mind when I went through, <laughs> that is so bad. I'm able to laugh about this now. The one thing that was in the back of my mind when I went through this awful process of first going to seek emergency help was that a year or two back, um, I had had, I, I, I guess it must have been a CAT scan for something, though I can't think what. And my doctor said, you know, there's something that's just like small on your brain. It could be a tiny, tiny aneurysm. It's probably something you've had since birth. It's probably benign, but we should keep a look on it, an eye on it. That was something that made me very fearful when this happened, because as has subsequently been confirmed by the research I've obviously done after the event, um, the vast amount of... Uh, I've, I came home with a diagnosis of about six different things, but uh, one of them is subacnoid hemorrhage, and about 85% of those are caused by aneurysms. And um, a very large percentage of those, up to half, are fatal. And wow. there's very few, only 15% that uh, are non-aneurysmal. If you've got any idea of those figures, it's, uh, it, it's not encouraging. But uh, I did not have any other reasons ever to expect for something like this to happen. And in a very, very simple way, brain hemorrhage is bleeding on the brain in its most simple terms. What was your first indication that something was wrong? All right. So we flash back to the beginning of August and <clears throat> I was coming to the end of a camping trip with my younger son, visit, who's 16, visiting my older son, his brother, um, who's 26 uh, this past couple of days, up in the, the older son's hometown these days of Burlington, Vermont. There's a lovely campground up there. We did, were camping because the hotels are really expensive right, right now and lovely time of year to camp. I love that ground. It's on the beach and we had had a couple of meals on the beach, the three of us. And on the last morning of three days we were there, we'd stayed three nights I wanted to go for a swim because I hadn't done so yet and um, it seemed a very simple process. I figured that I'd had the best sleep of three nights there. It's never that easy sleeping in a busy, busy sold out campground, um, but I felt that I had slept well. I'd made my morning coffee. I'd waited for my son to get up. I'd asked him if he wanted to join me for a swim because he hadn't gone in the water. He said, no, but I'll come to the beach and pull a chair down and read something and you know you can go for a swim and I wanted to make it a decent swim because I've done a couple of I don't swim enough I know how good it is for you when I swim in the local lake here the Ontiora Lake I love it and uh, Lake Champlain which is vast and it's a freshwater lake so it stays really warm generally stays very placid down at North Beach, it has not just the sort of ropes off swimming area, which itself is very big, but then behind, beyond that, it has a very long sort of lap area where you can swim from one buoy to another. It's a few hundred yards long. Uh, people who do swim there are often training for a triathlon, and I've trained for a triathlon there before, and I just wanted to go out that far and do um, do a bit of swimming. I mean, that was that was all that was on my mind. When did you start experiencing odd symptoms and what were they like so the water was unusually not calm it's not so much to say it was choppy there was just these sort of small waves coming in again i didn't think that would be a big deal but when i did get out that far and i should also stress this is lake is 
takes ages to get beyond the shallow level. So when you even get out to that lap area, you're still pretty much able to touch the ground. I mean, you only have to come in a foot or two more to touch touch the ground. When I did get out there, it was still I was still battling these sort of small little waves a bit, and because I was trying to swim perpendicular to the shore, it wasn't easy to do the swimming I wanted to do. And I didn't have fun, and I was having a very hard time getting a rhythm. And I, so I just scrapped it. I kind of thought I was doing the right thing. Both I was also, let me just say, I was wearing a wetsuit because I hadn't worn my wetsuit all year, and I wanted to wear my wetsuit. So all around, I thought I was just doing the right thing. But when I put my feet on the ground and started walking back into the shore, I felt really odd in a way I'd never felt before. Um, never felt before at all. And I know now that actually I had just experienced a form of stroke. Um, I didn't know that at the time. And to be honest, although I was really weirded out by this weird feeling, I didn't compute that at the time either, because although many people have strokes and particularly as they get older, I would have thought I was like, you know, pretty, pretty low on the list of people who were going to get a stroke of any kind. So you're not feeling great and you have to make your way home. Yeah, it was our and last morning. Now, I, I will say I will say this, that there are a couple of things that have had me thinking. One of one of them is a sort of retrospective. Was I having headaches leading up to this? You know, was I experiencing some tension leading up to this that would cause anything strange to happen? Um I the one very very strange thing is when we went to the movies on the Sunday when it was raining so like 36 hours before um I was tired from my first night at the campground when I didn't seem to get a whole ton of sleep as often is the case the first time you're out and back in a tent and back and sleeping on the ground that's bumpy um I made this really strong coffee at my older son's apartment promptly went to the cinema and fell asleep and it just felt very weird afterwards like why did that happen but um it's related. After after this this happened, I was aware that we were going to have to get back to Kingston here in New York unless I really felt bad. But I was I decided, well, we're on the, the beach. I, I managed to get out of the wetsuit, but not too easy. And I do remember saying, yeah, I'm going to lie down for a bit. I may have even told my son I feel a bit weird. And I felt really weird. And I felt like part of me wanted to go to sleep and part of me said, don't go to sleep. And to the extent that I was able to then sort of pack up the tent and do what needed to be done, i.e. There, there's, there's a couple of combinations of things that I think humans can do all kinds of things when they need to do them. A listener might also think, well, you can't have been that ill if you could go around packing up your tent. And that listener is possibly correct in the sense that what had happened is something had just like yeah burst right torn and the bleeding had just started the bleeding had just started it was uh, so i'd experienced that kind of shock of something happening but i was not yet experiencing the full blown uh, hemorrhage that so i was sense. able to go about some activity even as we then drove to say goodbye to the older son and i said you know what i need to lie down for a little while and the same thing i laid down and said I'm a little worried about going to sleep and I didn't go to sleep. But I eventually drove us back. I think I stopped several times. I was very honest with my younger son. I have a migraine. 
Um, I have a migraine. This isn't an easy drive for me, but when I get you home, I promise I'll drive safe. So I'm going to stop every hour on the way back. Yeah, across five hour drive. I think I remember you telling me that you had a migraine. Yeah. And that was sort of the message that I got from yeah. you. So your symptoms continue and they worsen. So tell us what happened over the next couple of days. Yeah, I am um, not, you know, there's a couple of things I'm not proud of, um, but it's not like, hey, I did the worst thing in the world. I've got here like um, I've got here for, for on Dr. Google. What are the signs and symptoms of subarachnoid hemorrhage? Number one is a seizure, which I don't recall having. The next one listed is severe headache, the worst headache pain that you have ever had. Well, I already had a pretty bad migraine and got it was going to get worse. Number two, nausea and vomiting with the headache. Um, well that's, sorry, that's in the next one listed. Um, I did throw up when I got back home at the end mm -hmm. of that drive, and that should have been a big warning sign. The next one here is double vision. I don't know that I had double vision, but the next one is neck stiffness. And I really had that, and I think I told you I had that. Yes, yeah. You, you said you, you might have strained your neck while you were swimming in the lake. And, you know, we're always trying to look for excuses, um, explanations, something that tells us we haven't done something bad. Uh, I, I mean, I'm like that. I think a lot yeah, of people are like that. So normal. I was going stiff neck. Um, I must have had trouble with my turning during the crawl in this water, even though I can swim. I mean, I have done shorter distance triathlons. Uh, well, that's now manifesting. That's causing a headache. So they're all engaged. Let's let's ignore the, the, the vomiting because it wasn't like the worst sickness I've ever had. Let's ignore that and hope I'm better tomorrow. And vomiting is, is sometimes a normal symptom that goes with migraine. There you go. So, there you go. Yeah. so yeah, I can see where you're... Yeah. Your excuse line made sense and you yeah. were functioning. So what finally sent you to seek medical attention? Sure. It, 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 it was a full 24, 36 hours later. The, the next day, which would have been a Wednesday, I had ambitions, you know, goals. I think I spent most of the day trying to moderate or medicate the, the headache, probably taking way more Advil than usual and drinking lots and lots of water. And I somehow got through that day. I did. So I did sleep the Tuesday night that I got back. I think my body was OK to sleep. But the following night, um, I had decided and maybe I hadn't told you this. I think I was probably putting on a brave face. Yes, you were. But I had decided if I was not feeling better on the Thursday morning. I was going to get help, even if it was just calling the doctors. But I was aware of that. We have a new urgent care building. Not far away, I was aware that was an option. Somewhere in the middle of the night on Wednesday night, I had a dream slash nightmare that I remember very vividly. Um, it involves people in my life and it didn't just jolt me awake. It actually uh, propelled me out of bed. Um, like I'm talking about I jumped out of bed like, you know, whatever your worst scenario is. And this was because the pounding in my head was such that it threw, like a cannon going off. I remember just jumping out of bed and going, holy, like what? Oh my God, this is painful. And they do describe, as it, as it says here, the worst headache pain that you've ever had. I would say that that was the worst that I've had. And I was, I didn't know what time it was. I was left thinking, do I go to hospital now in the middle of the night but um 
my teenage son's sleeping next door. So then what do I do? How, um, you know, who do I get hold of in the middle of the night to say I'm doing this? Or do I just wake him up and tell him? Or do I just leave a note? Next time, call your girlfriend. Okay. All right. But, but I completely understand. That's a very parental thing to do. And... I I will say, I think if you had been with me, if anybody else had been with me other than a teenage boy because they're in their own world, God bless them. I mean, God bless them. They should be in their own world. I think you would have not waited that long. You'd have said, right. you know what, we're, I'm driving you somewhere, uh, whether it's emergency yeah. or urgent we care. We would have worked it out. But I waited sure. till first thing in the morning and um, I could not get back to sleep. I was scared to get back to sleep. Every time I laid down, the headache came back. If I could stand up and walk around, it, it, it was manageable. I could function. I do recall I made some coffee and then I couldn't drink it. And I was like, man, I'm really not well. So I drove to urgent care. So at urgent care, they did some tests? Yeah, they, I, I think in that sense, it, it was it was the right call because rather than the chaos of an emergency room even that they're with best intentions uh very very focused very calm i walked in and to cut this story real real short i got a very good nurse practitioner who listened to me and she said yeah on one hand you're presenting well but you've um, you know your faculties are with you um on the other hand you've come in with high blood pressure because this time when my blood pressure was taken the nurse was not the nurse practitioner the person who took it went oh and it was a very different O than the one I'm used to. And I was like, was that an O, it's high? And she went, it's a little high. And it was really high. Mm. And so the nurse practitioner said, you know, you're talking about this headache. I think you need a CAT scan. I uh, want to get it done here and rather than the hospital. Give me a minute. We took, I was had the CAT scan within about 20 minutes. They were very quick there because nobody else was really there. <clears throat> she came back in about 10 minutes later said, how did you get here? And I said, I drove. And she said, well, that's not happening. I've called an ambulance. You've got bleeding on the brain. It could be an aneurysm. Uh, do you have a preference for one of these two hospitals? And you're you're on your way there. And that, when you, like, I'm a grown man. I'm probably still believing a little bit older than this nurse practitioner, even though she was quite senior. Um, it doesn't really matter how old you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they've got to tell you it as it is. But. That was some scary, yeah, that was some scary stuff. And when she walked out of the room, I freely admit I, I allowed myself some tears. I was I was genuinely like, I, I don't understand, but most of all, oh my God. And she actually must have said to me because of how I texted you and I texted my ex-wife, of course, because I had to immediately, however terrible I was feeling, start letting people know right. them, that there was an emergency scenario. So for my ex-wife, it was, can you please pick up our son? Um, you know, for you, it was just, it was informing you. And I was given the understanding I was probably going to be operated on immediately. Um, and it was very, very, very upsetting and scary. Yeah, I had asked you earlier in the day how your headache was, because I was aware you had this migraine. And I didn't hear from you for a couple of hours. And then you texted back, not good, the worst news, Um they're bringing, they're sending an ambulance to urgent care. I'm going to the hospital. I'll probably go right to surgery. And of course my reaction was, Oh my God, babe, I'll be right there. (laughs) And you said, no, you have to take care of your, your own. I'm going to be in surgery. Just bring my pixel charger tomorrow. That actually, I I realize how that sounds. 
Um, it was actually really important really quickly because I, I actually was so busy texting people that by the time I got to the hospital, I was literally like, so if I don't die, does one of you have a charger <laughs> for the phone? Because I'm going to need to keep texting people. But this, and I'm glad we can do this now. And I held off of telling people, I held off of, of I was a little cryptic in the last podcast episode, one of my best friends in the UK who listens uh, texted me and was like, my God, what happened? And I was I was cryptic on a, a Facebook post. Um, and I still don't know if I've over or under-dramatized what I went through. Um, but at the time, it felt extremely, extremely serious. But I have learned that if you put those words brain, brain hemorrhage down, you know, that's, that, that's, how, that's how people will take it, um, is that you're dying. And, you know, for... I'm able to laugh about it now, but that's really partly because I've eventually been given the all clear because I fell into this small percentage that gets to come out of this okay, particularly if you've got very good health to begin with. Yeah, um, with with the ability to look up on Dr. Google mm-hmm. what um, you had, I immediately started looking up brain hemorrhage. Everything I saw said usually caused by aneurysm can cause brain damage and uh, death. Yeah. And so I thought this was it for us. And yeah. uh, I did, in fact, go to the hospital once it became, you know, apparent that you weren't immediately going into surgery. I did bring you a charger, remember? I don't know if you even remember. Like, later oh, that, that was, that's where the charger came from. Yeah, yeah. I okay, brought you no. a charger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's how <laughs> so a wonderful boyfriend I am. I remember that. Uh, well, you not... were a little busy. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your hospital experience? I know yeah. you have a lot of impressions from that that you'd I like do. to share. I do. And firstly, um, I wish we had socialized medicine in, in, in the USA. I'm all for it. I spent quite a bit of time in a hospital in the UK this year because my mother went into hospital and uh, she's in a care home. She has dementia. She had shingles that didn't um, get better and that can manifest into encephalitis which is a form of brain damage so there's been a lot of like discussions about brain damage going on and her hospital made an error um the second time she was sent there and they sent her home early and i was pretty furious i ended up flying over i did track down the the consultant who made that error and he admitted it to me and she was in a um a pretty old national health service hospital um that's been done up but it just made it worse with all the scaffolding and it you know you can see what happens when you have socialized medicines it's not properly supported financially fortunately i was covered i know a lot of people are not covered and i was terrified at first like just like what's this gonna cost you know an ambulance what's this gonna cost what's this gonna cost and thinking like those savings i have are meant to last me for when i retire uh i i'm thrilled i was covered but what I will say is that in my particular scenario, the healthcare I received was fantastic from the woman at urgent care who quickly identified what was wrong with me and what was likely to be happening to me to everybody at Vassar Brothers Hospital. Um, they, I did genuinely think I was going to go under the knife. What actually happened is they got me in. I think they saw with my faculties that it was hopefully not life-threatening. I had endless, I mean, I was on an IV in the ambulance. Um, I was on an IV down there. They're literally tweaking my body fluids. Um, they're asking me endless questions. Every Another doctor will come in, another surgeon will come in. They, they, I kept thinking they were going to put me under the knife. It's a little bit of a more drawn out process, which can 
go over step by step. The long and the short is I was in the hospital for four nights, three of them in ICU. My care was, um, you know, like 95% excellent. And I've tried to laugh about this where I can. They put me in a room that was like, you know, the uh, the corporate executive office room. You know, you know, like the uh, the CEO gets the corner office. It was like I got the best room in ICU, and I had this view of the Hudson River uh, from my hospital bed that was just beautiful. And it was summer, and it was like, well, if I'm going to be in an ICU room, I might as well have a view like this. I mean, you know, I was trying to trying to get what I could out of it. There there was a bit of rough and tumble in the first in the first day or two there. Yeah, I'm sure it was scary. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that roller coaster and what the doctors were saying to you at different points? Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that I got tired of very quickly of endless people walking into the room. It's like I felt like I was in a holding room and I probably was like, are we going to operate on this person? So I'm in the emergency area on the ground floor. You know, I keep waiting to be rolled in. And the longer that they don't roll me in, the more I realize maybe my my life is not in danger, or at least my my brain is not in imminent danger of of kind of killing me or maiming me. Um, <clears throat> they the headache was terrible, and it it was sort of constant, and I'm having to fight through it. So I'm sending out you know texts to people because I need to, but I'm trying to fight through it, and it was getting worse. And they actually got to the point of giving me morphine. And I knew it was really bad when this uh, young nurse came back and said, how's the morphine? I'm like, nothing. I mean, it's not, it's like you didn't even give it to me. They, um, I also got diagnosed, interestingly, with um, hyponatremia, which I probably pronounced wrong. But as, as a runner, I'm aware of that. It's actually when you've taken in too much liquid and you don't have enough sodium in your body. Um, I would not normally fall into that category. I think I was trying to drown my headache. So I was actually adding to my problems. I had pounded a lot of Advil. So when they're saying to me, like, are you on blood thinners? I'm like, no, what what have you been taking Advil? And they're like, well, okay, how much? Like, a lot. <laughs> okay. Yeah, not great with already having bleeding on the brain because it, yeah. is, it is a blood thinner. In yeah. Its, the, in the, the Thursday that I was in there, they gave me another CAT scan, this one with contrast. And that was the very first thing they did. And I think that put them a little bit at ease that they didn't find what seemed to be an evident aneurysm. I had also looked up aneurysm. Uh, See, I'd looked up an aneurysm on the Wednesday. I just didn't look up brain hemorrhage. So I knew what an aneurysm was. I'd known people who've had them. And I was kind of aware that if I had an aneurysm, I wouldn't have, I'd have either been dead or somebody would have called an ambulance in time. That there wasn't going to be too much in between. So I felt, oh, it's not an aneurysm, but I had not looked up hemorrhage. And now I knew that I was having a brain hemorrhage. Um, They did line me up for an angiogram, um, a a CT angiogram. And I thought that might take place immediately. They actually had me do it very, very first thing, like first person in in the uh, operating room on the Friday morning. An angiogram is a yet more invasive form of a CAT scan. And this time what they do is they put in a, um, uh, it's it's another form, it's actually a form of dye that they put in, but it's very, very specific. And what they do is, A, uh, a they, they sort of open you up and, and they run this dye all the way up from your crotch to your brain. And then what it does, it's more like, uh, as the surgeon described, it's like, a CAT scan takes a photograph, but with a 
angiogram they take more like a, a he says it's more like a video and then they'll take a 3d image like a snapshot with the video at a particular moment when that dye is passing through i had been told first thing in the morning they felt confident enough that they weren't going to put me under general anesthetic that's what the anesthetologist told me when they came up at 6 a.m before i'd had coffee and wasn't going to and um when i got down there the surgeon said oh no you're going under general because if I find something, I need to be able to open up your skull and get into your brain straight away. And having been told that wasn't going to be the case, suddenly it's really unnerving again. But there's no time to think. He said, you know, I we'd be able to clip the tissues or we can actually glue or worst case. But I don't think it'll be for you. You know, people get a stent put in. Um, but I want to be able to do this straight away. If if we don't put you under general and I find something, I've got to talk to you about it. We've got to un, undo everything and we lose time. So can you sign these documents? You know, and it's it's kind of like on the organ donor level. And, and, and it's like, all right, here it comes. You're just going to feel a little prick and goodbye. Is that the moment that you were trying to convince them that uh, I should be your proxy? Yeah, but they never got around to getting the form from me. Yeah, um, see, you would have been in limbo I if would something have been, had happened. I would have been in a certain, a certain limbo, but I guess I wouldn't have been around to know about it. Well, I was flattered and honored that you thought of me <laughs> as your proxy. Um, I showed up later on that morning bringing you lots of good vegan food, and, yeah. and you looked like a, a little bit like a pincushion. They had put they had tubes and wires everywhere, and you'd, you'd been through it, but... That test was the turnaround point, right? Where they were able to tell you very clearly when they kind of what's going on. slapped me awake, which is what I remember them actually doing. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I was slapped awake. Uh, very, very quickly, the surgeon said, I did not find any aneurysm. So we're, we're pretty confident that you're going to be okay. So we're sending you back upstairs and you should feel good about that. And I did. And yeah. I felt great about it. When you're in a hospital in that kind of scenario, you you just have no choice. But you put your entire trust in the people that they know what they're doing. I'm very pleased that in this scenario, they knew what they were doing. Did you want to talk about the diagnosis that they gave you at that time? Did you want to? Well, I didn't really get it at that time, Paula. Um, um, the next, uh, you, you know, we don't have to dwell too long on being in the hospital um, I asked a lot of questions and some of the questions that I asked were sensible ones and, and I got informed answers. Right. For example, I remember asking my night nurse, did I come in too late? And he said, no, not really. Um, some people come in too early and we suspect a hemorrhage, but we can't see it. So we just keep doing CAT scans every six hours until we can see the blood on the brain. So that explains why I was able to do things like drive home and function just a little bit. He, I, he did say, and I did ask the question, that very often it's not the hemorrhage that gets people. It's the underlying conditions. Right. And so if you're coming in, you know, with some pre-existing condition, I guess, you know, same as we've seen with COVID, um, it's enough to tip you over the edge. So he was you know, kind of the first to say, you know, you're, the fact that you're in really good health is um, has worked in your favor because, you know, your body seems to be able to fight this and put in all its efforts to fight to fight this. Um, initially, the doctors and surgeons, everybody kept coming into that holding room and asking me, you know, what's up? What's up? And they're asking me, did you have trauma? And I said, no trauma. And they're like, you know, uh, are you fit? What's your lifestyle? I said, I ran 
two ultramarathons in the last five weeks. But you have to believe me, I took them easy. And I'm almost looking at them. I'm like, I know that sounds like an oxymoron. I couldn't get those words out. But that's actually that's actually the truth. And um, those were the questions and those were the things I got answered there. I didn't get a really clear diagnosis of what had happened into actually you know, a week or two later when I when I went back and had more follow-up consultations and they were able to be a little bit more clear about what happened to me. There were certain words used for uh, when people were talking to you like you did have a form of meningitis and yeah. you did have a stroke. Right. Well, these... Okay, so these things... The way I look at it, Paula, and this can be useful, I think, for other people... Um, that are listening and just maybe have gone through their own things and also trying to understand their own things. Um, one or two aspects. The the diagnosis, you know, I came home from the hospital with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lists on here. They include inter, intracerebral hemorrhage, intracranial bleed, subacneroid hemorrhage. Um, they can overlap. And a lot of what I got diagnosed with is like these Venn diagrams where bits, you know, different circles can overlap. You can have two diagnoses that you could still have separately. Um, only on leaving did the nurse that was looking after me in the non-ICU room that morning say, oh, I took my, my postgrad in, um, in stroke management. And so, you know, you had a stroke. And I'm like, no, I didn't because I'm fine. You just saw me walking and you're sending me home. <laughs> And she's like trying to tell me that what I had was a form of stroke. And it actually wasn't until I went back in two weeks later that the there was a very senior surgeon that I, I felt had the air of the top man. When I came back to see him like two weeks later, he said, you know, you had a form of meningitis. Um, I said, really? And he said, yeah, a lot of people think meningitis is an infection, but it's actually swelling of the brain. And so what you had is a form of meningitis, just not the infectious kind. So I had a meningitis, I had a stroke, I had a hemorrhage, and that all of those make it sound like you probably should be dead or something close to, but you don't have to be if you're fortunate enough, which is how I feel about it, to be in this sort of slim percentage where it's non-aneurysmic. Typically for non-aneurysmal um, hemorrhages, there is not a clear diagnosis. And so we think we know everything, you know, in, um, in, in medicine and science because we've made so many advances over the years. But actually, we don't know. And this is not just me. I mean, I'm literally, I've literally kind of looked up um, and I have seen that uh, we don't have a clear definition of what causes this. So one, yeah, one thing that I printed out, the precise etiology of bleeding in patients with what I had has not yet been established. They just know something happened and they kept reinforcing to me it's random. It obviously wasn't the swim and yet maybe the swim was the trigger for something that was going to happen. That brings me to a couple of things I wanted to talk about. One of the, my concerns uh, when you were getting ready to leave the hospital was that you would suffer some emotional and mental trauma, some PTSD from having this happen. Um, I, I suffered something similar when I had pulmonary emboli about 10 years ago. So um, talk a little bit about that and um, about the um, your emotional state and whether you second-guessed yourself 
on certain things because there's this big question mark yeah. for you. So to both those, um, when you picked me up and I got out of the hospital after the four nights, I was so tired. I so, so tired. They just wouldn't leave me alone at night. I was taking pills all the time and they would come in and check my IVs. And even when they got me off the IVs, they'd be coming in for blood pressure. And on the last morning, um, they're like, how's the headache? And I said, it's it's bad, but I just don't know if it's lack of sleep or whatever. I was glad to get out of there. And I said, can we stop for coffee? Because I think I need to just go over this a bit before I get home. I need to sleep for like a week. But I think I also need to just be able to talk it out a little bit. And that was when you mentioned to me, you may have some PTSD based on what you went through. Right. And only a week later did the consultant that I saw say, you know, I think you're going to be fine physically, but maybe emotionally you'll still have something to go through. I spent about three days recovering, three, four days just kind of like taking the meds and sleeping. And when I finally had the courage to look up, you know, my diagnosis on, as you say, Dr. Google and saw the statistics for myself, I was like, wow, I dodged a bullet. I really dodged a bullet. And actually, it was pretty frightening to to read that. Now I realize that when I sort of, you know, texted my, um, uh, when I texted my brother, um, about a brain hemorrhage, you know, why he would have also gone and looked it up and been like, oh my God, one third of people die, one third have brain damage or, you know, some form of major stroke. And it's, you know, it's really, I, I, the second guessing is obviously going to happen. What did I do? Was I tense? Was there something? Was, you know, you keep going back and saying, well, if I didn't go for that swim, that wouldn't have happened. But if I didn't go for that swim, it, I'm, I'm, they are pretty certain it was going to happen imminently. Right. It might have been the on swim the next was run. simply the the match that lit, you know, or, or yeah, the catalyst. Or you used another word that I thought was pretty trigger. Good. Just, yeah, the trigger. Yeah, right. and you. You, and you, these are the kind of things that you want to be glad they didn't happen somewhere else. You know, I've climbed Kilimanjaro, traveled the world with a lot of in a lot of developing countries um, four years back. That was when there was tension around. I mean, it's pretty tense traveling in India and the medical care is not great. Um, you know, that's why you take out insurance when you travel. But there were places where had that happened, I don't know. You know, the fact that it wasn't life threatening is partly has to be balanced by the fact that I got to hospital at a point that they could medicate me, stabilize me. You know, they were giving me all these like anti-seizure medications, these you know, anti-vasospasm medications. They weren't just going, oh, it's all right, you're not going to die. Just rest up there and we'll, we'll do a, 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 another check in the morning. They also did an MRI on me, which is a whole other thing with all the noise that goes on when you're in that kind of coffin. Right. And they, they really you know, did not cut any corners whatsoever. I was like, really, an MRI as well? But um this could have happened somewhere else. You just have to look on the on the fortunate side. You can't help a bit of second guessing, but there is there is an emotional fallout when you realise what could have been, and you realise how fragile everything is. Because I would have had to, if I'd had that major stroke, I would have had to adapt to potentially. You know, I mean, people have major strokes lose capacity usually of one side of their body, something like that. I can't. I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. Other people do go there, uh, have to go there. And similarly, if I'd had some brain damage, you know, in any way of those, I, you know, I'd have wanted to be around because I've got kids. But 
and and you and other things but not i you know i don't know how much fun it would have been so i god i just feel i do genuinely feel like actually blessed tell me how you used meditation and music right during this recovery period right i um thank you for raising both both of those the the in the hospital when you can't sleep you've got a choice of even allowing yourself to get frustrated which is not going to be great when they've marked you down for coming in you know with with all presenting all of this so i went the other route i did used to meditate a lot we talked about this in a couple of previous episodes um of this show specifically with the zen teacher who wrote a book about running and i let it go and I found that uh, just doing some of that, even in the hospital bed, was giving me, putting me at peace. And I did have this very bizarre and beautiful experience on the Sunday morning where my brain just started playing these projections to me um, very, very peacefully, very um, psychedelic as well. I've got to say, I mean, a really kind of like psychedelic kind of trip. I don't think it was just lack of sleep. Um, it was too... It wasn't. It was something more peaceful than that. I've only experienced something like that once before. And I felt oddly, the doctors may laugh at me for this, but I I sort of felt like the brain was trying to apologize for jolting me out of bed four days earlier. And it was trying to, the same brain that's functioning right now with me talking to you was trying to say, I can be nice. Like we can have a good time together. It was, it was beautiful. And it was very peaceful. And I have had a lot of headaches since coming out. I mean, they told me that, oh, that I would, but they were very unspecific. And I think, again, they don't know everything. Okay. And they're like, you're going to have headaches. You know, that's why we're sending you. Well, they sent me home with, as you know, not six. with, but six prescriptions. Six and when prescriptions. we went to get them, they were like, I mean, I, I saw them do a double check. Yes. And one the of them. The pharmacist they, was a little. Yeah. Was like, is, is he Okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, deal. it was, there, there was a lot to deal with there, but I did have the headaches and I've been doing a lot of waking up very, very early, early than I would like to. And sometimes with a headache and I just try and, uh, other than medicating it, I try and meditate my way through it so that I can maintain a positive outlook and be at, be at peace with everything. And I have had more moments of true peace in this last month than probably the few months before, because I think, you know, you have that valuing everything. Sure. What about the reggae? Yes. <laughs> I love reggae music anyway. I've always believed that there is nothing wrong with the world. There's uh, nothing wrong with the world that can't be cured by a good dose of reggae, especially dub reggae. It's When I came out of the hospital, I found that's all I wanted to do was listen to reggae. I went on this massive, exclusive kick where I just found it unbelievably uplifting and um yeah, I mean, it almost started with the joke of the song Night Nurse by Gregory Isaacs. But <laughs> yep. I, I, anybody who knows me knows that I've got a pretty extensive reggae collection, love of it, my old band, growing up in London. I still want to go to Jamaica and go to Kingston. I forced you in the last week to watch The Harder They Come, the great first classic Jamaican reggae movie. Um, this got kind of compounded in the way that these things happened. You know, Lee Scratch Perry died and it was as monumental as, as Charlie Watts dying. And that just meant that everybody I listened to on the radio or on the online show was playing more reggae music. Um, on When I felt well enough to get back out of the apartment, I said, I want to go buy some records. It's like, you know, what do I want to do with my, like, like $100 worth of secondhand records or maybe a couple of reissues? 
preferably reggae. And we went to one of the two stores up here in Kingston. And lo and behold, if somebody hadn't just unloaded the reggae collection of like 12 inches, including by Gregory Isaacs, pressed literally in Kingston, Jamaica, or on obscure indie labels in London and Brooklyn. And I came home with like $120 worth of, of vinyl that I'm still getting through. And there's these weird ways the universe seems to to sort of like serendipity maybe, but a very nice serendipity. Just when you needed it. Just when you, you needed got the music it. when you needed what it. What the doctor ordered. So are you um, back to your normal athletic level? Well, I'm not back to my normal athletic level. When they first sent me home, it was kind of like resume normal activities. I, it's like, yeah, well, that would have meant probably a 20-mile run on the mountain tomorrow. So you probably don't mean that. I, they have told me, they told me in the hospital, but it's been reinforced since because I had another angiogram. This one I was kept awake for. Uh, it's not a lot of fun. It's quite painful, actually. The guy wanted, the doctor, one surgeon wanted me able to, to, to be able to hold my breath when he wanted to take the picture. The upshot of all of it is I've been told statistically this will never happen to you again. You have a clean bill of health. I'm having to work my way back up to that level. I want to get back to that level. I understand, and one reason, again, I was reticent initially to tell people what happened is I can just imagine everybody going, yeah, well, that's what you get, Tony, for you know running around like an energizer bunny. Uh it's been possible to say that that isn't partly the case, but it is certainly possible to say that this would almost undoubtedly have been worse if I wasn't right. this athletic. Now, and the doctors have been very clear that you did nothing to yourself to make this happen. And in fact, your state of health improved your chances of coming out of it unscathed. Yeah. So I do want to get back to the activities I've had. And as a way to kind of put a bow on this and... Um, and even for the, for the for the show for the time being, it does reinforce and demonstrate why staying active and having in general good cardiovascular, good you know, resting heart rates, hopefully good blood pressure, all of these things do pay off because not only do you generally feel good and feel happy as a result of it, but they can potentially save you when something much worse and unexpected presents itself. Do you have any final thoughts, lessons, or things that you're uh, looking forward to coming up? I think only uh, only to just add that when you go through something like this, you um, you 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 do create a you do find yourself saying, "I need to like like say a few things and take care of a few things." Um, one of them was 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 sort of between us and feeling like I needed to be. Uh, be more honest with you about how I felt about you because you'd been that honest with me earlier and I think I was just like scared there but having somebody who cared for me and clearly cares for me as much as as you do means a lot to me um and and actually similarly I know that you can handle this and I think it's important but um we're both divorcees and relatively recent divorcees we both got kids boys in much the same age range and you know the second full day I was in there, my, my ex came down with my, my younger son and um, we had a, a really good conversation together. And at the end of that, she was able to say, you know, I love you. And that hasn't always been easy to say when you come out of a divorce. Right. And, you know, there are good things that come out of these things, not just that you go to your local record store and they've got a reggae collection for like really good, good value, good money. 
but that you actually some good things can come out of all of this and it's to me sure. the life lessons are to you i don't believe things happen for a reason i believe myself that when things happen you've got to learn from them and you've got to create you know every crisis is an opportunity everything is there to enable you to get to the next step in your life so instead of going right i didn't deserve that you can be like well that was strange weird and unexpected but what can i get out of it um absolutely yeah i'm hoping to still take part in a couple of events i'm going to probably just have to take them a lot slower um, going back in for the second angiogram right when I thought I was like back to normal, knocked me out for another week. It's right. now five weeks down the line probably since I was discharged and I'm finally this week of recording this feeling like I might be back to to the Energizer Bunny me. I will try and continue the meditation to be grateful for every moment um, and to give pause and all of that stuff but I do also want to be able to do the good things in life and I given this opportunity I'm going to continue to do them I do want to thank everybody again at Vassar Brothers for looking after me so well for their cool, calm, collective, collected confidence and anything else that begins with the letter C. I also knew I was in good hands when I was going down uh, 10 days later, two weeks later to see the specialist, Dr. Wright, after hearing him holding court for an entire hour on Medical Monday on my local NPR station talking specifically about the brain, about strokes and about the need for a healthy lifestyle. Thanks also to Paula Lucas for doing the interview there. I thought it would be way more interesting for you to hear this as a back and forth rather than just me spouting on endlessly, as I often do on this show. I kind of wanted to do that kind of co-hosting thing somewhere down the line, but for now... We have run out of time. I have had such a blast doing One Step Beyond for 18 months. It hasn't always been every other week, but it's been near enough. And we have had some tremendous conversations, some great guests, some good documentary style reporting at least i believe we have and i appreciate all the great feedback that i have had it is undoubtedly unquestionably i'm not going to deny it it's a lot of work putting together a podcast especially if you do want to take time on it and do more than just a, a quick call and it's impossible for me to juggle two shows and i am starting another show because i just feel the time is right and i feel the segueing is right here and much so i have utterly thoroughly enjoyed doing one step beyond you know when i said about it and we were in the initial stages of lockdown and i was putting out the kilimanjaro episodes i think like a lot of people i thought we'd be back to our travels very very soon it was always my intent for the show to have more in the field travel reporting and it was also my intent to do a lot more stepping outside of my comfort zone I realized by the end of it I was doing too much of reporting on other people doing that while I carried on doing the things that I do hopefully I'll be back and um, have some you know really good interviews some good ideas lined up don't be surprised if you see 
the episode come out with the sort of documentary in the field style report from our group run of the escarpment trail run because it's all in the bag if i can ever find a spare time to edit it i promise i will So what is this other podcast I hear you asking with bated breath? Funny you should ask, we have a trailer ready. In fact, the trailer got published earlier today. Yes, it's been very busy around this household. And I would like to believe that the trailer says everything you need to know. So the theme music for the new podcast that you're about to hear under the trailer is also by Noel Fletcher, the same 16-year-old referred to earlier in this episode see you over there on the new channel the jamming fanzine podcast there will be a link in the show notes there may be a couple of other links as well for now hey thank you so so much for taking the journey with me and i will see you all very very soon take care peace i mean the thing about fanzine was holding it in your hand right and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together quite quite frankly and it had a staple in it you know and and that was that is a fanzine right welcome to the jamming fanzine podcast in late 1977 as a school kid in south london inspired by the diy culture of punk i started the music zine I had no long-term plan and certainly no idea that over the next decade, Jamming would grow to become a national, even an international monthly magazine. But that you would actually go and interview Pete Townsend. It's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, how do you... And McCartney. It's like, no, you're a fanzine. No, that that was amazing. That's what completely marked you out. And I certainly could not have imagined that in 2021, there would be a full-colour book collecting together what we have called the best of jamming, selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up, 1977 to 86. You know, when I look at in in the book, uh, when you talk to Madness, we'd really let our guard down a little bit there. I think that's the great thing of fanzines, that people relax a little bit more, musicians relax a little bit more, and you get a little bit more out of them, I think. It's packed with reproduced interviews, articles, photographs and cartoons, includes fresh recollections from those who were part of the jamming story and comes complete with a foreword by Billy Bragg. For the Jamming Fanzine podcast, I'm hosting conversations with some of these former contributors, photographers, musicians, scenesters and school friends and seeing if we can't, through the rose-tinted glasses of history, offer some sort of perspective on the heady days of that heavyweight decade. It was just the joy of going, yeah, this is really good. There are some really good interviews in here. There's all sorts of bands in here. You should see it. What is it? Oh, it's a fanzine. Yeah, great. Because there are a few around, but none, obviously, that I thought was as as good as jamming. The Jamming Fanzine podcast will drop every other Thursday from September 23rd, the book's UK publication date, unless we are, in true fanzine tradition, late to the proverbial printers. Hit subscribe now and we'll see you on the podcast stack. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming?
One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.